0: Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Tricower, and I'm a communicator here at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Researchers spend a good portion of their time applying for funding in order to be able to conduct new research projects. There are many different sources to apply to, but amongst them is the European Research Council. TRIO is home to two ERC grants already, and now a third, an ERC starting grant, has been awarded to Research Director Marta B. van Erdal. Starting grants are meant to support early career researchers who show exceptional talent. Marta's project, titled Migration Rhythms Introductories of Upward Social Mobility in Asia, will look at the roles of migration for social mobility, specifically for today's middle class in Asia. By interviewing families in four Asian cities Karachi, Mumbai, Hanoi, and Manila, The project will investigate not only how migration has affected upward social mobility over time, but also what narratives people construct around migration. Thanks for joining me, Marta. I'm really excited for your project to start, and I'm always interested in the insights of your work. So maybe we can talk a little bit about why you picked middle class people to focus on and also why you picked these cities, since I know there is some significance for you based on your previous research.
1: Thanks, Indigo. Um, So why middle class? That's something I've thought a lot about. And of course, there might be different ways in which we understand what is middle class. Many of us are perhaps seeing ourselves as middle class, or we have a sort of preconceived idea about what that is. Um, and I'm not uh, a scholar of class. I'm a scholar of migration. So why, why am I focusing on middle class? Well, basically, the reason why is that there is this unprecedented growth in middle classes in the world. Uh, and we kind of know about this. So a lot of things are going better than they have for a long time, even if the news doesn't give us that impression very often. Uh, so a lot of people are doing much better globally than they, they did even three, four decades back. Uh, and so they are entering what we might term the middle class. And we see that 90% of the global growth in middle classes is actually happening in Asia. And I find that really fascinating. And I've been working with migration issues of very different sorts uh, in Asian context for a long time uh, and not really been that interested in the middle class part of it. Uh, and then I've been become very sort of curious about what is the role of migration in this middle class growth? And I've been trying to sort of figure out what has been found out about this? What have other people written in different contexts? Uh, And of course, economists, demographers, um, urban scholars have looked into some aspects of this, Um, but none of them are that interested in migration, and especially not migration um, considering different types of migration, so short-term and long-term, internal and international, people returning, circulating, maybe people not moving at all, some people moving more or less. Uh, And so I thought, here there's really an opportunity to do something more and to try and sort of figure out what's going on with migration uh, in this unprecedented role of middle-class. So That's a long answer but that's kind of the connection about why middle-class. It's to figure out what are the roles that migration have, has played uh, in the past two, three generations in families' upward trajectories to middle-classness. And then the way I want to try and figure that out is by looking at people who are living in middle-class neighbourhoods uh, and then in specific cities. Uh, and these specific cities that I'm looking at in this project, uh, there are four cities, and they're in some of my favorite countries in Asia, some that I know really well and some that I don't, but are still my favorite countries. Are uh, they places you want to visit? <laughs> they are places that I will be visiting and uh, doing part of the field work myself and part of the field work with other team members. So the cities are uh, Karachi in Pakistan, which is not a city that I've uh, worked in much before. I've worked much more in, in Lahore and in smaller urban areas. Uh, So it's going to be new in that sense, uh, but it's a very exciting city and then a context that I know very well at the national level. Uh, And then Mumbai in India. And again, not a city I've done research in at all, but I've been doing uh, research in Pakistan a lot, so related a lot to India, and I've been to India myself uh, before uh, a number of times. Have you been to Mumbai or is that new for you? It's a totally new location, which is uh, exciting uh, and a little bit daunting. Fortunately, I know a lot of people who do research there and I have read the research about it, so I don't feel like I'm totally studying on... On scratch, uh, But it's a new context. So, of course, that's very exciting and and probably also quite challenging. And then there's two further cities uh, where I'll have other team members doing most of the work, but I also will visit them, and I'm really looking forward to that. And that's Hanoi in Vietnam and uh, Manila in the Philippines.
0: So since you've done some work in Pakistan previously, do you speak the language or uh, languages? I know you do these interviews, and that must be really personal for your interviewees. So, do you speak the language that they speak to you, or do you have an interpreter, or is it a combination? How do you work with that?
1: It's a very good question. Uh, so, I would say that uh, usually you'd probably recommend people to speak the language if they're doing an interview with someone. Uh, and I don't speak the languages that might be relevant, right? So, I mean, the countries that I've that I've picked for this project, um, English is an important language in some of them. So, Pakistan and India perhaps more the Philippines definitely too Vietnam definitely less so um, and no I don't speak Urdu which I should do uh, I understand a lot of words uh, and for each time I've been in Pakistan I sort of pick up more and I can you know, say hello and be polite and uh, understand which types of food are being served or learn key phrases that are important to my research related to migration or remittances or family members or locations and things like that uh, but no I don't speak the language unfortunately uh, at the same time That enables me then to work with people who are based locally and who do speak not only Urdu but very often the local languages that are needed. So that might be Punjabi or Sindhi. Now, what I find interesting about this project, and I don't know how it will work, but I hope that because I'm picking, uh, talking to people with a middle class background, chances are that in in Pakistan and India, where I'll be doing the research myself, many of those I'll be speaking to will be fluent speakers uh, of English. Yeah, um, yeah. But that remains to be seen. But I, from my past experience in Pakistan, certainly that is to be expected, mm-hmm. which is in fact part of the reason also why I thought this is feasible, because I do think that it is a it's a bit of a challenge to do field work yourself and not understand the language, even if you work with good local teams and you have a good collaborative relationship. It is different. Uh, so my hope is here that I will actually be able to to do a lot of the interviews myself, not necessarily having to to rely on partners uh, all the time as well. And then um, we'll see who joins the team in terms of the work to be done in, in Hanoi especially. But I expect that Vietnamese competence might be um, significant there.
0: When I was reading a little bit about your project, you talked about some of the research that's been done before, but also why there's, there are some gaps. And one of the locations that is emphasized is the U.S., since there's a lot of research about people going to the U.S., but then it becomes about those people's lives once they've left and established a new life there, So how are you addressing that gap using Asia and looking at it differently in this project?
1: Yeah, so the the research project basically sits in this sort of uh, research field of social mobility and then links between social mobility and migration, so social and spatial mobility. Uh, And of course, there's been a lot of research on this uh, in in Europe and also in the US and a lot of work on social mobility in the US. And for obvious reasons, that includes uh, immigration, uh, and then what happens to the children of migrants uh, so kind of saying that not enough research has been done on social mobility and migration usually would meet the sort of typical response that you know what on earth are you talking about there's been huge amounts of work done which is true in that context and it's true also uh, in the european context we have quite a lot of research coming out about the social mobility uh, upward or or not so much upward perhaps uh, of children of migrants in different european societies Uh, But what's interesting is that there seems to be a sort of disconnect between that body of work uh, and then looking at this middle class growth uh, in different Asian countries and the sort of roles of migration in social mobility in those contexts. Uh, And I think that there's possibilities to do more connections there. Uh, And I think specifically that it's important to look at how social mobility in families, if you look at families as units of analysis which are not spatially bound necessarily, so they might be connected between different places, especially if you look across generations. So you can have grandparents, parents and kids. They might be in different locations, but they're somehow still part of the same family and perhaps financially linked, perhaps through remittances uh, as well. And then when you start looking at it like that, then there are a number of things you can explore in the Asian contexts today where you have had this unprecedented growth of the middle class, which haven't too late been explored fully in the US context or in the U- European context. And also there are questions to be asked, I think, about, you know, how transferable is the theoretical insights that we have from the US context or the European context to the Asian context? Uh, and then perhaps also back again. So that would be interesting to see at the end of the project what I find out looking at these cities in Asia and, and the roles of migration in upward social mobility there. You know, does it have any relevance and application for analyses that are happening uh, based on research in other parts of the world?
0: So Marta, we're both migrants to Norway uh, from different countries, and I was wondering if there's any personal significance to this project for you, or maybe you know people who have experienced this uh, social mobility, uh, class mobility. What's the background of your positionality there? I guess as a
1: migration researcher, more generally, the fact that I do have a migration background sort of impacts that at different uh, at different levels. I think for this particular project, the sort of family story part. Uh, which is going to be one of the sort of two core methodologies together with, with survey data collection, uh, is definitely sort of inspired by the fact that I find family stories of migration really fascinating and interesting um, from my own family, certainly from interviewees' families, from friends and colleagues, also from past research uh, in Pakistan where you sort of speak to people that you work with or get to know or interview about specific things. And then you, when you get to know them, you get to, to hear their family stories. So in that sense, it's sort of uh, a personal motivation coming from my family, but also from all these kinds of other types of of connections, I think, to bring out those family stories. And I think at a sort of um, a different level in a way, uh, it's interesting on a personal level because it's research that will not involve doing fieldwork in Norway, uh, which I've, I mean, I've done fieldwork in Norway and I've done fieldwork abroad before. Uh, In this project, there's nothing which is connected to Norway. And I think that's in a way refreshing uh, but it's also made me reflect a bit on on you know why is it that I, I want to study migration somewhere else uh, and I think there's sort of a personal connection there in that I find that the ways in which we talk about migration uh, in, in Europe but also other places in the world these days is quite often very problem framed uh, and so one of my sort of ambitions with this project in on a sort of personal level is that I would want to try and really empirically investigate questions that have to do with migration in a very sort of robust scientific way uh, in order to shed light on what kinds of impacts migration does have for families uh, in positive ways in the long term. And of course there are negative implications at different scales as well but I think that's kind of one of my ambitions to kind of try and get away from the, the messiness of the, the sort of public conversations that we're having about migration and diversity in many places in Europe but also beyond uh, right now.
0: Since you talked a little bit about your research in Norway, I'm just going to bring it back to that right now. I know you researched quite a bit about remittances, and in your project, it's going to be really key. Uh, Now you're looking at it from the other side, though. So how will you be incorporating that? Yeah, so
1: remittances is usually defined as the money that migrants send back home or send back to their relatives and friends in places of origin. But then remittances can also be sent to other places where you might have family and friends as well. Uh, and in fact, there might be reverse remittances. So migrants might be receiving money from family and friends elsewhere as well. Basically, the money that migrants uh, might send back is is what we usually understand it to be. Uh, and yes, so I mean, this this project is really exciting also because it takes me back in a way to where I was doing my PhD research in Norway on remittances that were sent uh, from uh, Norwegian Pakistanis back to family and relatives in, in Pakistan. And so, like you say, in a way, this is sort of looking at it from from the other end at the at the receiving side. And in my PhD, I did a bit of both. So I was looking at both sending uh, and and receiving of uh, remittances. And of course, there are a lot of a lot of connections I think there, which are really uh, interesting to explore. Uh, and I think the role of remittances in the long term is interesting because very often we focus on you know quantitatively measuring or trying to measure at least you know how much is being sent, perhaps how often migrants send money, uh, what. Drives or determines whether they can send money, and which types of amounts. But uh, I found really interesting in my PhD research was to try and figure out, well, who does it actually go to? So who, do, who receives the money and who actually decides how it's being spent? Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, as anyone who's, who's looked into this will know or who knows maybe from their own family histories, um, the money often gets redistributed. There might be conflicts about it. Uh, there might be agreements. There might be joy. There might be, you know, different hopes and, and disappointments. It might go to education or health. It might serve very many different purposes. Uh, and so, in this project, what I'm looking at is to try and see, uh, well, first, when people look back through their family history, how how much remittance sending and receiving has there been in these Asian families, um, and, and second, you know, to the extent they're able to to reconstruct that, what was it spent on, uh, and then I'm also really interested in the narratives about it. So the things that have to do about how the families uh, tell the story of how they became middle class and what kind of a role remittances and migration
0: internationally or internally uh, features in that. When you were just mentioning that families might argue over how to spend money, I started to wonder, what do you think is a typical signifier of being middle middle class? Since that's what you emphasized before. It's not upper middle. It's not lower middle. It's middle middle class in Asia. What do you think the first thing is that someone would buy if they were aiming for that middle class status?
1: I guess it's, it changes constantly, right? So I think sort of uh, IT tech phone type gadgets uh, are definitely there. And then which types that would be, I'm sure, is you know changing really fast. Uh, but I think one of the interesting things is that very often when we um, talk about remittances and how you can maybe observe in uh, in places where migrants have left from that there is a migrant in that household, it's perhaps based on the fact that that household or someone in that household might have a motorbike, or they might have, you know, uh, a cooler iPhone or something than, than other people might have. So it kind of seems very um, artificial, perhaps on some on some levels. Very often, those investments are also linked to actually earning money by having that motorbike or being able to stay in touch or perhaps run a business by having those means to communicate. But it's of course also about status, right? Uh, so there might be other types of household appliances as well, which are linked to both status and at the same time to what generally is understood by being middle class, which means having more leisure time, which you can access by having things like uh, a dishwasher or a washing machine uh, or a freezer, which means that you can freeze food rather than having to go shopping very, very often. So all the all sorts of things like that are um, are interesting, I think, because they somehow also connect perhaps uh, the, rece- the receiving of remittances. Uh, with the fact of being middle class or having a middle class status or aspiring to that middle class status through having those types uh, of goods.
0: When you said dishwasher, I started thinking there's a similarity there with Norway, like having a dishwasher is something to aim for. Uh, Because so many of my friends, when you get a dishwasher, it's like, oh, you have a dishwasher now, you really made it. (laughs) So it's interesting to make that comparison that some things are similar on the other side of the world as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it also also brings home uh, another sort of feature that I really want to try and sort of disentangle and look at in the project, which is has to do with sort of time and has to do with generation. Because I think in the Norwegian context, it's probably less to do with class and more to do with life stages. So, of course, in a student flat, you would never have a dishwasher or, you know, some people probably do. But I, but I can recognize what you're saying. There's something about having a dishwasher and having a dishwasher that works, which necessarily <laughs> yeah, doesn't happen. Haven't. Exactly. Uh, but I'm thinking probably in Norway, maybe it's more sort of trans- life stage transition yeah. thing, yeah. Uh, and that's kind of also something which will be interesting to look at because I'll not just be speaking to you know one generation in a family. I want to try and actually interview two people in each of the families that I'll interview. So hopefully 25 families in each of the four cities, but with two individuals in each of the families, and the idea is to try and have uh, a man and a woman to try and get a bit of a gendered perspective on what's going on. Uh, but also to have people in different generations. So it might be, you know, someone who's a young person, so a student, perhaps, and then their grandparent. Uh, and I think it would be really interesting then to see also uh, the different generational perspectives on what's happening now, but also their perspectives on what has changed over time. Uh, and of course, it's hard to then know, you know, the grandparent today, when they're describing something which happened 50 years ago, they were 20 at that point. So their view of society at 20 and at 70 is obviously going to be different. But I think those kinds of narratives are really interesting to to look into and to really sort of try and um, pay enough attention to the role that time actually plays in how we experience and understand the world.
0: I am an unabashed pop culture addict. And when you started talking about class in Asia, of course, my mind had to go to Crazy Rich Asians, one of my favorite book series and an incredible movie. And that brings me to my question, how do you think the rise of the middle class is going to affect the ultra-wealthy in Asia? Uh, Because my mind was kind of blown when you cited those stats about how big the middle class is becoming.
1: So it's basically like 90% of the rise in the global middle class is happening in Asia. So there's a a huge rise in the middle classes in the world, and then it depends how you define it, how big it is, right? But the thing is that a lot of that rise is happening in Asia, Whereas in Europe and in North America, there's more of a stagnation. Some people are speaking about the shrinking of the middle classes, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's what I hear all the time. Being from the US, I hear there's no middle class, the middle class is disappearing. So what is this going to do to the extreme ends in Asia?
1: I think it's a really important question. I think uh, the upper end of that, probably not much, because there are super, super rich elites. uh, that have many of them have been there for a long time. There are, of course, sort of new rich, rich people as well. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's always, there's, that's always going to be there, and there's always going to be fairly small. Um, but I think what's interesting is sort of the the, the position that middle class uh, middle classes might have in the sense that there's a lot of precariousness at the bottom. So if you kind of imagine that you're sort of entering the middle class and you're sort of floating around that border of, you know, do you have a dishwasher or not, say right? Uh, and then a lot of it has to do with your position on the labor market and whether it's precarious or not. And the difference very often is, do you know that you have an income the next month or not? Uh, And sort of the differences between the lower middle class and what comes below there uh, aren't necessarily that big. Uh, And I think, you know, with corona now, uh, that could change things. It could shift, you know, the boundaries, meaning that millions who've been aspiring to borderlining, being middle classes and enjoying those types of lifestyles might fall down. Uh, there might be other things which sort of, you know, flip it the other way and sort of move them up again. Uh, so I think probably there's more going on at the the sort of bottom end, if you will, of that spectrum than at the top end, I imagine. Um, but I'm looking
0: forward to be able to, to answer that more properly down the line. Staying on this pop culture topic, there's a lot of really good fiction about migration and mobility and class and race and so on. Some of the ones I've enjoyed, uh, some books I've enjoyed, are Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, uh, and The Lowland by Jhumpa Lahiri, which was amazing. But one of the things we talked about before we started recording was that these kind of books are often focusing on people who leave, they go to the US, they go to Europe, and it's kind of like they stay there and the narrative's all about them leaving. And there have been a lot of authors who have criticized that, saying like, alright, why... Is it that any kind of migrant or immigrant story has to be, I was in this country, it wasn't good enough, I left, my life got better. So maybe you can talk about some of your favorite books, but also possibly challenge that narrative a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. Yes, I was thinking about which my favorite books are, and there's so many really, really good books uh, about migration stories in different kinds of ways. And I think one of my favorites is The Namesake, so also Jhumpa Lahiri, but another book. Really, really love that. And then um, also The Sympathizer by Viet Tan is is really an amazing, amazing book. It's, it's such a good read. And of course, sort of from a con- within a conflict uh, setting and then with, a, you know, a very complex spy related kind of storyline, uh, but a really, really good book. Um, but yeah, like you said, that and also sort of films like it Like Beckham or books like oh my you know, God. Brick Lane, I you know, they <laughs> so I all Yeah, and all of those are kind of, uh, like you were saying, very much focused on sort of the immigrant experience. Uh, And that is super fascinating, and I love them. Uh, But thinking about it in the context of this project, it made me sort of really think about the fact that, yeah, well, exactly. Uh, Why is it that when we study migration, even though there's so much focus on transnational ties and remittance sending and receiving, um, both in research, but especially in popular culture, there still seems to be this sort of pervasive focus on the immigration side of that and not really uh, looking at both sort of emigration and immigration and short-term and long-term and, and different types of migration. And I was really struggling to come up with an example of a sort of a popular culture um, focus on these things, but I think, you know, probably it's there. So if you think about different types of films, I mean, it could be Bollywood or other films from different contexts around the world, very often migration is sort of intertwined into it somehow. So it's not the main thread, but there's probably like an uncle who is living somewhere else and then comes back. Or there's someone who goes to stay for a holiday somewhere else. Or they go to study somewhere else and they come back. Mm-hmm. So it's not kind of the main trope of the book or the film, but it's it's sort of, it's sort of there. Mm-hmm. So it kind of uh, shows the ways in which migration interplays with other factors that affect social change. Uh, and I guess that's kind of what I want to do in this uh, project as well. And then I'll be um, on the lookout for popular culture expressions of those kinds of things as well.
0: Yeah, and to do justice to the examples I gave with both American on the Lowland, there is an aspect of coming back. It's not just this sort of one-way narrative. So if you haven't read those yet, I definitely recommend them. Yes, absolutely. And actually, one example I just thought of, which is kind of funny, but I feel like it fits what you were just saying, is the Eurovision movie on Netflix. Have you seen it? No. Because in that, it's really about focusing on your hometown and Why would you leave or do you want to pursue this life of fame and fortune, but maybe at the cost of what you really love? It sounds hilarious, but it's true. I really think it will fit some of the things we've been talking about. So I guess we've run out of time. We went a little over time, but it was such a great conversation. I didn't want to stop. Thank you so much, Marta. I really appreciate talking to you, and I'm excited to hear about your research once the project actually gets going. Thanks, Eligio. Good to talk to you. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit PRIO.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trig Hauger. Music by Martin Renemel.